Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, and day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? And that was a word that you used to dispraise somebody whom you thought was peddling a theory that you think well off the wall. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Jesus was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And right away, you see that Jesus was, uh, Paul rather, was making so much of the resurrection that they thought he was talking about two gods, Jesus and Anastasis, which is the word that means resurrection. And so let's hear about this Jesus and this Anastasis thing. And then Paul goes to speak to them, as you know, in the course of that chapter. And they begin to realize to their horror at one point in his talk, which is quite interesting up to this point, that he really believes that resurrection is not some female deity who lives on Mount Olympus like the rest of the other goddesses, but she is something that actually happened to one man in history and can happen to other people. Uh, Paul reaches a point where he says, God has set a day, this is verse uh, 21, when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And they, whoa, that's what he was really talking about. And you get the reaction. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. And so it's been ever since. This whole idea that somebody could come back from the dead. Why, why do Christians make so much about it? Can you actually believe in it? And most people out there have never really looked at the evidence. And as we were saying this morning, often when you do look at the evidence, it's amazing how it changes your mind. This is Pembroke College in Oxford. And back in the 18th century, when Dr. Samuel Johnson was there as a student, there were two other students there with him who were pretty clear that they could get rid of Christian thinking forever. Their names were Gilbert West and his cousin Lord Littleton, George Littleton. And they decided in their first year, because they weren't doing much work anyway, that they would do some study for about three months. And one of them would look at the Bible and try to disprove the Bible, and the other one would look at the resurrection. And they would get back together in three months and just see what, they, what they'd come up with. And so when they got back together, at the end of that time, one of them said to the other, well, um, I have something to say to you. And the other one said, well, I've got something to say to you too. And they found that both of them had independently, through studying the facts, become convinced that the gospel was true and that Jesus really had risen from the dead. And uh, Gilbert West wrote a book about uh, the resurrection, observations on the history and evidences of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, testing to, find to the fact that he believed it was now all true. And his, uh, he persuaded Littleton to write a, a letter as well, that's Littleton there with a the fuzzy wig, um, uh, on what he thought about the, the, the Bible. And he wrote a thing called Observations of the, on the Conversion and the Apostleship of St. Paul. And Gilbert West published them both. And it was a situation because it was so well argued. It was so well thought out. And uh, they didn't shirk looking at the difficulties in the story. Littleton wrote towards the end of his, his uh, bit of it, some difficulties occur in that revelation which human reason can hardly clear. There are still some difficulties, things you can't understand. But as the truth of it stands upon evidence so strong and convincing that it cannot be denied without much greater difficulties than those that attend the belief of it, as I have before endeavoured to prove, we ought not to reject it upon such objections, however mortifying they may be to our pride. Two men in the 18th century who had the courage to look at the evidence and the humility to say, yes, it's right. Move on a century and you come to the guy I mentioned this morning. 
Lou Wallace, governor of Alabama, writer of Ben-Hur. When he started writing the book, he said, at that time, speaking candidly, I was not in the least influenced by religious sentiment. I had no convictions about God or Christ. I neither believed nor disbelieved in them. But meeting the sceptic Robert Ingersoll and thinking, surely he can't be right. The world is such a cold, chilly place. If that is true, let's have a look and see if the whole thing is such an incredible mirage and fable. And he discovered more and more it wasn't. And in the end, he wrote Ben-Hur as a novel. Uh, not the, what he intended to write, the disproof of Christianity, but a, a, a novel which testified to his faith that Jesus Christ really had come back from the dead. Well, that was the 19th century. Move forward to the 20th century, and you'll find a, a young journalist called Frank Morrison, again, starting as a skeptic and an atheist, trying to disprove the resurrection, and in the end, producing a book called Who Moved the Stone, <laughs> which is probably... Uh, persuaded people of the truth of the resurrection more than any other book written in the 20th century. And as we said this morning, you can go on into the 21st as well, because right now we have Lee Strobel around, this hard-hitting Chicago newsman who became convinced after his wife's conviction he'd better look at this stuff and expose it for all the rubbish it was, and who ended up becoming a Christian author himself. Strobel says, in light of the avalanche of evidence I found, it would take more faith to maintain my atheism than to give in to Christianity. And he said, since the resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teaching, it's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. It's the miracle of all miracles. Well, those are big words. <laughs> Can you justify them? Let's look at some of the opposing theories tonight. Next, next time we do this, um, we'll talk about three good things you can say to non-Christians and passages you can use and so on. But let's just look at the outline of things tonight. By the way, the next one is not going to be next week. We, I usually do the last one in the month and the first one in the following month. But uh, the leaders here have been incredibly merciful. There's two of them sitting here, so I've got to be very uh, gracious here. But they have been good, and they're letting me keep Anthea on holiday next week, which is fabulous. And so I'll be seeing you again on the 20th of August, and uh, you'll be free to paint this place or whatever it is you're, you're, you're doing while I'm at the way. It'll be brilliant. So I'll come back and criticise the turquoise or something. Anyhow, uh, let's, let's look at this whole thing then. What are we going to talk about? Well, I, I, I had a quick okay, go at this this morning, but this is basically it. First, we have to say, is, did something actually happen? Is this all a fable that's made up hundreds of years later? Or is there something there to explain? We have non-Christians who say, there's nothing to explain. It's just one of those stories from way back in history. Paul Daniels, the magician, comedian, uh, said, you know, I used to go to church until I read the, the facts. He said that, uh, that all of these stories about dying and rising gods, they were all over the ancient world. The Greeks believed in them, the Egyptians believed in them. So there's just another example, isn't it? There's no facts behind it. Well, actually, if you'd looked at the evidence, he'd find uh, it was very, very different indeed, and that the, the story about Jesus' death and resurrection is so different from the Egyptian stories and the Greek stories, they're not talking about the same thing at all when they talk about resurrection. And when you, you look at the way in which the Christian story came about, it came about in the last culture where you expect those myths of dying and rising gods uh, to be. Jews had believed from, for centuries and centuries that there is one God, that he's unchangeable, that he, he created everything. And that God does not uh, die and come to life again. And this whole idea that a human being could be God himself and could die on a cross and come back to life was just so alien to Jewish culture. There is no way they could have seen it in Greece or Egypt or somewhere. Oh, that's a good idea. We'll have a bit of that. They'd never have taken it on board. So first we have to solve that question. Do we know that something really happened? 
And then second, you've got to say, well, has it been exaggerated? Could it all have been Chinese whispers? You know that game where you, you start whispering something at one end of the line and people whisper it to one another until you get to the other end of the line. And in the famous example, you start out by, by uh, saying, send reinforcements, we're going to advance. And by the end of the line, it's turned into send reinforcements, we're going to advance. <laughs> well, that goes back years, as three and fourpence tells you. It's pre-decimalisation for one thing. But uh, anyhow, that kind of thing. Could it be that this story just grew up over the years and the decades until people started believing in it, although way back... There was no truth in the story whatsoever. Well, if you answer those two questions successfully, you've got various theories about what else might have happened. If there is something to answer, and if it hasn't been exaggerated, then there are two groups of theories, I think. First of all, are what you could call the knockdown theories. The ones that just try to get rid of the whole story straight away. Oh, it's all quite simple. It was all hallucinations. Oh, they just went to the uh, wrong tomb and they found it was empty because nobody had been buried there yet. And they, oh, Jesus, it's a mystery. And that's what I call a knockdown theory. Attempting to find a, a simple answer that just knocks the whole thing down like a row of Skittles. And there are three of those that are pretty big. There are also uh, the three whodunit theories. And they say, well, bodies don't go missing. It's got to be somewhere. Who's got it? Was it the disciples? Was it grave robbers? Was it? And, and, and so on. And they try to find the guilty person. Now, it's interesting that those six theories are really the only ones that have been in circulation for hundreds of years. And thinking back, the latest one, which is probably the Swoon theory, uh, was first formulated, as far as we know, in the 1920s. So that means we've had 100 years now and nobody's come up with another theory about what could have happened except for the bizarre ones like, oh, Jesus was teleported by aliens or something like that. Uh, this shows my age. The one I heard from a school kid once when we were doing a lesson on this in, in a school in Swindon. And uh, do you remember Texan bars years ago? They stopped making them years ago because they were horrible anyway. But they were chocolate bars. And the advert on TV showed uh, uh, somebody in a sombrero being put into a cave uh, by uh, guerrillas who were going to come back and shoot him. And there were two guards at the entrance. And he just unwrapped a Texan bar and started eating it. And the idea of a Texan bar was it went on forever. And so they fell asleep and he just strolled out of the prison area. And he, it was a Texan bar. Jesus started eating a Texan bar. And even the kids would go, oh, come on, be realistic. That's stupid. So there are no new theories really coming up, which is very interesting indeed. That would suggest that there are enough facts around for us to get rid of the stupid stuff. And we're only left with one or two that we even have to think about. And then, of course, the final question you've got to ask is, does it really matter? All of this stuff is about one death 2,000 years ago. Surely we've got bigger problems in the world to be thinking about. Does it really count? And that, I think, is, is, is the way in which the devil tries to use this whole resurrection argument in the world today. To say to people, it's an argument about history. A long way back. We don't really know what happened anyway. It could all have been exaggerated. It's got nothing to do with the problems you're facing nowadays. And that, I think, is why sometimes when you can put together a really convincing case for the resurrection, people will be impressed for about three minutes and then, oh, yeah, yeah, but real life resumes. <laughs> And then they're not interested anymore. So don't expect your proof of the resurrection to be so watertight that people are moved to become Christians through it. It does happen. Happened in that story in Athens. You know, some sneered. Others said, oh, we want to hear you again about this. And others clung to Paul and believed. So it will occasionally convince people. But it's the sort of thing that sounds much more compelling to Christians than it sometimes does to those who are in the blindness that the prince of this world tries to, to, to bring upon them. Anyway, let's look at those things. First of all, do we know for sure that something really happened? Yes, we do. 
There had to be something pretty explosive that happened around the time of the death of Jesus to propel all of this stuff into action. I mean, just look at that map there. That's a map of a way in which the Christian faith spread in the first 600 years of the Christian church. And you can see that from Jesus having something like 120 followers when he died, most of whom had run away and left him, <laughs> in just a few years, the church had spread all over the Mediterranean. Those uh, dark blue bits are those where uh, Christianity had spread by 325 and they were strongly Christianized. And what that means is that almost a majority of the people who lived in those areas were Christians, and at least they knew about it if they weren't. And then in the next 300 years after that, you see how it spread uh, until it's, it's even reached Britain and, and influenced parts of the British Isles. Something big happened, and something must have happened to cause this explosion. Because when Jesus died, his followers were small uh, in number and persecuted and frightened. They were scared. What happened to, to make them as fearless as they were? They would go all over countries in that part of the world, spreading the message that this man had risen again. It would be absolutely crazy. Unless something had happened to change them. You don't see Peter scared of death, as we were saying this morning. Denying Jesus at the moment of, uh, of his trial. Suddenly turning into a world beater. But he did. And that seems to have happened to, to uh, people who met Jesus right from day one. Something had to happen to cause it. We know from the book of Acts that 3,000 were con con converted on the day of Pentecost. Soon after that it was 5,000, including many of the priests. And after that it started spreading all over Jerusalem, Judea, uh, and Samaria. Can Samaritans become Christians? And so the apostles are sent from Jerusalem to check it out. And yes, they can. And it just starts going everywhere. Now, something happened to cause that. And if Jesus did not rise from the dead, and their claim was so laughable and falsifiable as that, then there is nothing to explore. <laughs> but something had to happen, and therefore something needs to be explained. The idea couldn't have been foreseen either. As I say, this is a daft idea to expect people to believe in a Jewish culture that somebody would come back from the dead. Jews believed in a general resurrection at the end of time. But that was one of the reasons that they kept on misunderstanding Jesus when he kept saying to his disciples, I'm going to die and then I'm going to rise again. Remember the story we looked at this morning about the transfiguration. At the end of it, Jesus says, don't tell anybody what you've seen until I've died and risen again. And they say, yes, Jesus, yes, okay, fine. And as they're going down the hill, he can hear them behind saying, what do you think rising again actually means? <laughs> And they think he's taking anything from it but the literal idea. And the whole idea that Jesus was coming back from the tomb, what a staggering thing it was when they met the risen Jesus. Thomas, who wasn't there, said, no, I've got to see physical evidence before I can believe any of this stuff. That's how much resistance there was to the idea that they then started preaching all over the world. Why did they do that uh, if it was such a, an alien idea that they couldn't even grasp until they saw it in front of them? No, something there to explain. And third, the Gospels aren't fanciful legends. People sometimes say, oh, well, you know, the Gospels, there are probably all sorts of mistakes in there. And how do we know? Because they were written, what, 2,000 years ago? There are probably all sorts of discrepancies and errors. But actually, we found over the last few years that the Gospels are far more reliable than we thought they were. Boltman, the great New Testament scholar, was written to in the 1940s or 50s with a request from a publisher to write a biography of Jesus. And he wrote back to a very short postcard saying, I'm sorry, I would love to oblige you, but uh, the sources we have are fragmentary and legendary, and we don't even have any evidence that they really did exist. 
And uh, that was the view of many, many Bible scholars in the shadow of the great boat at that time. Then one of his own followers, Ernst Kesemer, started saying, hang on a minute, we can actually know more about Jesus than that. And by looking carefully at the New Testament again, he and others started to discover that the New Testament was much more watertight than people throughout the 20th century had glibly assumed. And so somewhere in the 1960s, a new quest for the historical Jesus started to take place. And people started to look at the evidence. And they found that Luke, in particular, was very, very careful and scrupulous in the way he recorded facts and dates and names and titles. And they began to realise that these writers of the Gospels weren't just making things up from their heads, weren't just recirculating myths thoughtlessly that they'd picked up from somewhere else, but they were saying something that they believed was the absolute truth and putting it down as honestly as they possibly could. So with all of that behind us, we can trust some of the evidence that the, the, the New Testament gives us for the resurrection. A little bit more than people thought a few years ago. Could it all have been Chinese whispers? Did it just grow and grow into something it wasn't to start with? Well, no. And here are three reasons for that. First of all, there wasn't enough time for a myth to grow. I think it's most of the scholars of the 19th century said, oh, you know, this is just like the way that fairy stories grow from one generation to another. Well, there wasn't time for one generation to another. The earliest of the Gospels was clearly written within the lifetime of people who knew what had happened because they had been there. There's a great book written a few years ago, which won the Templeton Prize by Richard Bauckham, a New Testament scholar, who was a Christian actually, and uh, Bauckham called his book The Eyewitnesses. And he said that in the early church there were people who were valued simply because they were the eyewitnesses. They had been there. And wherever they went and lived in the, the Christian church, they were had that job in the local church of preserving the truth about Jesus because the early Christians were dedicated to the idea that we must know the facts and we must keep the facts in circulation. And so, for example, old Joanna, who was probably one of the wife of Herod's steward, Chusa, who ended up in a church at Rome called Junia there, she was an eyewitness and says she would have had the job in the church if somebody came in telling stories about Jesus that just weren't true uh, uh, to, 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 to stand up and say, young man, that story is not true. Jesus' hair did not turn purple whenever he did a miracle. I was there. I should know. And she'd just keep the story clear and straight. And that was the way it was until the Gospels were written. And the Gospels were written on those partial accounts which were carefully preserved because the early Christians wanted the truth to stay valid and, and public. So there wasn't enough time for myths to grow around it. There just wasn't enough. Second, um, the resurrection is impossible to investigate. Yes, it did happen a long time ago. But we know enough about the details of that weekend and uh, the burial customs of the Jews and the way that the times would have gone over the whole thing, to be pretty clear about some of the details, enough of the details to pose a real mystery in the detail. Um, the thing is that uh, the, 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 the Gospels give us so much detail about the way that Jesus was treated after his death. And remember, it was all done at the time when people were still alive who could stand up and say, this not that's not true, and they didn't. Uh, they give us so much detail that it's been said that we know more about the last weekend of Jesus' life than we do about anything in the life of Julius Caesar. That's a pretty big claim, but it is actually more justification and more evidence uh, for that. Third thing is uh, the resurrection, as we said already, is not an add-on to the story. It was the heart of the Christian gospel. 
There's a love that will not let you go because it's a light that follows on all your way and a cross that you dare not ask to be excused because there's a living saviour behind it all and it's a relationship with Jesus that makes this whole thing fly. If Jesus is not there, if Christ did not rise from the dead, says Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, then we are of all men most miserable. Why? Because we're believing a total fabrication, a cruel delusion and a lie. And so if the resurrection is not true, Christianity can be dispensed with. And uh, that was what the early Christians staked their whole story and their whole credibility on. Here's an example of that. I may have used this one before in one of these. I don't think I have, but uh, this one fascinates me. Um, this is a piece of uh, writing, an inscription. It was found on the wall in an old Roman villa in Sirencester in 1876. Wood Street, Sirencester. They were knocking down an old house and they found underneath it a Roman villa that they didn't know was there. And on the wall, this funny sort of word square, Rotas Opera, well, let's look at it a little bit more easily. Rotas Opera Tenet Arepo Sator. And uh, as you can probably spot, you can read it all kinds of different ways. You can read it forwards, or you can read it backwards. Rotas Opera Tenet. And you can read it up, and you can read it down, and it always says the same thing. Trouble is, what it says is not all that valuable. What it seems to say, in very bad Latin, is a repo the sower holds wheels with care. What is that about? And nobody knew. And many people said when it was first discovered, well, you know, this is just uh, the sort of thing that the Romans did to uh, uh, keep the conversation going at dinner parties when it, oh, yeah, have you seen this thing we've got on the wall here? You can read it this way or that way or whatever. A bit like having a, a, you know, a, a book on the table when people come round with a sort of conversation piece that you can talk about if there's nothing else to talk about. I'll be that, nah, the Romans didn't do that sort of stuff. And it wasn't until the 1920s that uh, a German scholar called Grossmann worked out what was going on there. And what he did was, in very German fashion, write all of those letters out on different pieces of paper and just sit there and shuffle them around until they made some kind of sense. And what he found was, if you reorganise them like this, you get two words going in the shape of a cross in two different directions. Pater Noster, our Father. First two words of the Lord's Prayer in Latin. And that leaves four letters over, two A's and two O's. So we put an A at one corner, an A at another corner, an O and an O. In that, they sat down and thought, what am I actually looking at? And he began to realise he was looking at one of the very earliest Christian inscriptions. And uh, it was something that Christians would use to identify themselves to others in times of persecution. So that when you arrived at a house and you saw this kind of thing on the wall, you think, I'm in a safe house here, I can talk freely. And what it says is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because it goes right back almost to the start of the Christian church. We find other examples of it now in Carthage, in Pompeii, in Rome itself, all sorts of places all over the Roman world. And what it's saying is, the man who died on the cross was equal in authority and dignity to our Father. And he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's the A and the O. I, I used to go to the Corinthian Museum in Sirencester, where you can see this bit of inscription nowadays. It's there in a, a glass case on the wall. And just marvel at the fact that two millennia before I lived in Swindon, <laughs> 14 miles along the road, there was already a Roman centurion stationed in the city of Corinium who already believed that Jesus Christ was the Lord himself risen from the dead. 
And so right from the start, the story of the resurrection is tied in to the Christian claim. You can't take it out. What do we know about the weekend when Jesus died? Let's have a look at some of the facts that we do know. First of all, we know that uh, Jesus was sentenced to death. There is no question about that with either secular or, 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 or Christian thinkers. And the disciples ran and left him. They just weren't there. We know too that he went through tremendous suffering on the cross. Because we know about the crucifixion and what it did to you. The nails did not go through the palm of your hands. They were just ripped straight out. They were put through a place where two bones crossed just in your wrist. And hanging there meant you died from suffocation. Strange thing, but what it meant is it placed an enormous strain on your lungs and your heart. And eventually, it would just give out. It didn't happen quickly. It was a slow and a horrible way of dying. It was one of the most horrible means of execution that's ever been devised in the history of the world. Sometimes, when you wanted somebody to die quietly, <laughs> you could take a spear and stick it into the person concerned as well. That was called the crurifragium. And it was uh, done to hasten death because otherwise you could linger there for days. In Jesus' case, it had to happen quickly. Because um, uh, three hours after he was taken down from the cross was the start of the Jewish Passover. And no Jew was allowed to touch a dead body over that weekend. And so he had to be hustled away from the cross before that happened. And so the spear was stuck into Jesus' side. And uh, John's Gospel says that out of him came what looked like blood and water. And that's details there in John, because in those days it was taken by people who conducted crucifixions, and there were plenty of them in those days, as a sign that death had occurred and the body could be taken down. And so it looks as if Jesus certainly was already dead. But anyway, he went through enormous suffering, and before he was even on the cross, he was lashed with the, with, with, with the, uh, the, the 40 lashes minus one. They used to sentence you to 39 lashes with a great big leather belt that was studded with, with knots and bits of metal and all sorts of stuff. So tear the skin from your back. And they reckoned if they had 40 of those lashes, there was no way you were coming back. So 39 to take you to the very point of death, but not quite kill you. That was what they tried to do. So Jesus was in a pretty bad way. We know that has got to be true. Then there was the permission to bury Jesus. He was put into the tomb of somebody. Joseph of Arimathea came and asked for it, and Jesus was put there. We only know that from the Gospels, but nobody has ever questioned that statement or that fact. Then there's the location of the tomb. Now, this is, this is something we don't know about, because there are two possible places, at least, where Jesus could have been buried. They're not far apart from one another. Oh, sorry, the, the, before I go over, that's it. that one in the picture there is the garden tomb which is where a lot of uh, evangelical Christians believe Jesus was buried. And I personally hope that's true, because it seems to me to fit the facts better than anything else. And it's a lovely, lovely place. The other one I hated when I went there, it's inside a busy church that's run by nine different denominations who can't stand one another. And lots of people who don't really understand anything about Christianity go there, and uh, they're always people throwing themselves around on the floor and doing all sorts of stuff at the supposed uh, burial place of Jesus. And it just seems a very uh, horrible atmosphere to me. But I've got to say there is a possibility it is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre instead. Either place is close to where Jesus would have been buried, and there's a lot of similarity between them. The garden tomb is solid rock on every side. There is no way that the body could be taken out except through the front door. The church of the Holy Sepulchre, well, the tomb was closed for many, many years. And then in 2016, when they decided to uh, renovate the building around it, they found that they would have to do the work they had to do, they would have to actually open the tomb itself. 
And so in 2017, that took place. This is what it looks like today uh, after the re renovations are finished. Uh, the tomb is inside there. But this is what it looked like when they opened it. And they found, interestingly, two things. First of all, they found that the, 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 the um, tomb goes back at least to seven, uh, 1,700 years. Um, so, uh, um, from today. Uh, whereas previously, a lot of people would say, oh, it's only about a thousand years old, that tomb. It may be a tomb, but it's not a tomb of Jesus. And so we found bits and pieces around the tomb that suggest that tomb goes back almost to the day of Jesus, so it may well be the, the proper tomb. But again, it's surrounded by stone on every side. And if you look at a diagram of how a Jewish tomb looked, uh, you'll see that on the left there, there's that little um, uh, antechamber where weeping relatives could come and see the body before it was sealed up completely. You know, little chambers where the bodies were put, but solid rock all over the place. A tiny window perhaps to let in some light, but no way you could get a body out through anything but the door. So we know, uh, we don't know where the location of the tomb is, but we know there were at least 1,000 rock tombs like that in Jerusalem in those days, and so it must have been like that. We know about the burial customs as well. And we know that Jesus couldn't be uh, buried properly according to the Jewish rites at the start of the weekend. There just wasn't enough time. And what they had to do was take him to the tomb and uh, put the shroud over him. And we're not talking about necessarily the shroud of Turin. I, uh, I have... Great scepticism about that, but still, they would put a, sh a winding sheet over you and they'd put some spices around it. Later on, they'd put bandages over the whole thing so that uh, you were wrapped up a bit like an Egyptian mummy. And the spices were there, pressed down on your chest to make you smell sweet, certainly, but also to make, to melt and make the bandages melt together. And so, that was what would have been done. As it was, it seems that uh, the spices were probably just put in blocks on his chest and around him and uh, then he was left for the weekend. How many spices? Well, the Bible says that uh, Nicodemus contributed 100 pounds of spices. That's Roman pounds, so it would come to 75 pounds imperial weight, and I have no idea in kilograms. But, but uh, it's a heavy weight. I mean, if you think of 100 pounds or 75 pounds uh, of weight, think of a bag of sugar, which is usually about two pounds, isn't it? Imagine a dead body of 37.5 uh, or however it is, uh, bags of sugar placed on its chest. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. So it was a heavy, heavy weight. And it was not impossible because we know that for the death of Gamaliel, Paul's teacher, one of the most revered leaders of his day, used half that amount. For a normal person, it would have been half of that again. But Nicodemus really wanted to remember Jesus, so he did the thing only a very rich man would and brought these 75 or 100 pounds of spices. So uh, all of that we know about. These are all facts that we can we can be sure. We know that the, uh, there was a stone placed in front that women looked at on, uh, and said, oh dear, we're going to need a man to help us shift that. And that's probable too, because the stone used in front of tombs in those days, we've got plenty of examples still around, were massive and heavy. It would cause a lot of noise and disruption if you tried to move one of those. We know there was a seal placed around the tomb. At least we know this only from the Gospels, but... Um, uh, Nobody ever questioned it again, and it seems likely that would happen because Jesus was a politically exposed person uh, in terms of Coots Bank. Um, what would have happened uh, would have been that the Romans would have put a sort of police line, do not pass, around it. A rope stretched around the stone with a blob of sealing wax on either end and the emperor's head stamped, well, not literally his head, but the stamp of his head on either side. 
and that to break that seal was treason against the Roman Empire. So we know about that, and the stone and the seal around it. Um, the guard who were placed around it, the Jews came to, to, to Pilate and said, give us a guard to stand around the tomb. And he said something ambiguous. And here again is something we don't know. It was, you have a guard. And he was either saying, sure, you can have a guard. Here you are. Take nine soldiers. That would have been the normal number. And they'd normally be working on a, a, a two shifts on and then one shift off routine. So you'd have six people awake at any one time with three of the others sleeping around their feet, ready to be summoned at any second if, if, if somebody uh, um, uh, was going to break in or anything like that. And uh, so they would have six hours on duty and then three hours off in rotation. So there would always be plenty of people awake around the tomb. Uh, but we, it could have been the Roman guard or it could have been something else. Pilate could have been saying, you already have a guard. In which case the guards around the tomb would have been the Jewish temple guards, whose job usually it was to guard the temple at night. And they were fanatically devoted to the Jewish leaders. In fact, we know that uh, if a Jewish temple guard on duty at the temple... And the officer of the watch came to see how he was doing, and he'd fallen asleep at his post. He was not to be woken up. The law said that the officer of the watch had to get a lighted taper and very gently and quietly set fire to the bottom of that guard's gown. <laughs> oh, not many people fell asleep on the job. They were fiercely disciplined. And so it could have been them, or it could have been the Roman soldiers, but somebody was guarding the tomb like that. Then we know there was an earthquake, uh, we know about that, and that's typical in Jerusalem in those days. We know the story that the guards came up with, which was, oh, we fell asleep and the disciples took the body. Nobody believed that, even at the time, which is why Christianity spread so rapidly. And then the disciples suddenly get back together with a new spirit and a new life to them. What is going on? Um, and then you start seeing Jesus appearing in different ways to different audiences at different times. And it's clear that something very, very strange indeed has happened. Now, I've been through the evidence in so much detail just because um, I think you can knock down most of the theories very, very quickly when you understand those facts. Let's look at what I've called the three knockdown theories to start with. And I'll rattle through this very, very quickly. First of all is what's called the swoon theory. Right? That Jesus was still alive. He never actually died on the cross, but he... he, uh, he uh, came round in the cool air of the tomb and thought, ooh, I'll get out of here. I went back to his disciples and appeared to them and said, actually, I've risen from the dead. I was dead, but I'm not dead any longer. Oh, Messiah, you're the greatest, and so on and so forth. Well, all sorts of things wrong with that theory, aren't there? The idea that Jesus would come alive again after being so close to death as he was, the injuries he, he, he sustained were terrible. And if you were injured like that, say, you know, somebody's knocked over in the room outside Great Parks, and you have to look after them until the ambulance gets there, what don't you do? Well, one of the things you wouldn't do is take them and pop them in the fridge. That's basically what happened to Jesus. He was put into the, the, the tomb where he'd have had a massive catatonic seizure straight away. The change in the temperature would just have killed him like that. And remember all the suffering he'd been through. There was just no way that Jesus could be still alive. And if you did wake up and think, oh, here I am in a tomb, I have to get out of here. What are you going to do? Push the stone away with hands that are arms that have, have, have had nails through them. Get on your wounded feet, back, somehow past the guards, out of the garden, all the way into the city where, incidentally, people were sleeping outside, outside their houses because it's so hot at that time of year. 
and you get past every single one of them without being noticed. You stagger into the house with the disciples and you, here I am, lads, I'm the Lord of life, risen from the dead. <laughs> well, I don't think you'd have a very convincing appearance, to put it mildly. So there's no way that's true. How about the, the wrong tomb theory, that Jesus was buried elsewhere? Well, the one thing that the Jews wanted to make sure was that the, the, the body of Jesus wouldn't disappear and that we know jiggery-pokery. That's why one, the, the tomb guarded. And that's why a tomb was around, uh, a guard was around the tomb. There is no way that the disciples could have missed the tomb. Uh, and if they had, had some reason said, Jesus is not in the tomb, he's written again. Then it would be easy for the authorities to say, oh, no, no, the tomb you're looking for is over there and he's a corpse. It would be easy to do that, but they didn't. How about the hallucination theory? The idea that Jesus um, was an illusion. That all of these appearances of Jesus were just part of a growing kind of ghost phenomenon or something like that. Well, it is true that sometimes after people die, folks who love them, who are close to them, will think that they see them. It's kind of like the, the phantom limb phenomenon. You know, when you go to the hospital and you chop your foot off and you can still feel it afterwards. Uh, but that's not what's going on here. Because briefly... Jesus appeared in so many different ways to so many different groups of people, and different sizes of group as well, that there is no episode in the history of paranormal research that matches what happened with Jesus. There's just too much evidence that he really and truly was alive. But incidentally, is where uh, Jesus is supposed to be today. Um, uh, according to the Ahmadiyya Muslims, uh, Jesus escaped from the, the cross because Muslims believe that it wasn't possible for uh, Jesus as God's holy prophet to die on the cross, and so he must have got away. Jesus, uh, God created an illusion and Jesus managed to escape, and apparently he went across to Kashmir and taught there for many years, had a family, and is now buried in this tomb in Kashmir. That's so impossible. It just did not happen that way. So none of those knock-down theories, it seems to me, make sense. How about the whodunit theories? Somebody moved the body. Who was it? Well, the disciples had a body. Pull the other one. They were scared out of their socks. They'd all run away. How did they manage to regroup and get the confidence to go and carry out a daring raid on the tomb? And how did they do it? Breaking the seal was enough to have them killed on the spot. Pushing the stone out of the way would have made at least one of the guards wake up and say, oh, what's, what's going on here? And uh, if they got into the tomb, then they had to uh, get Jesus out of the bandages and cut them all away with some knife they'd brought with them and uh, then leave it lying, not as if a body had been taken out of a heap of bandages, but leave it as if he'd risen right through it. And we know that's how the bandages were. And the turban around the head had rolled off into the corner of the tomb by itself. We know that much. So there was no way they'd have had time to rearrange the scene to make it look as if Jesus had risen again. There is no way the disciples had the body. People sometimes say, well, the authorities had the body. Maybe the Jews or the Romans removed it for administrative purposes, and then the disciples got all excited about it. Well, the first thing the authorities would have done, surely, would have been to produce the body. I mean, shortly after this, you have Peter out of the streets in Jerusalem saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. The grave is empty. You can go and see it right here in the city. He rose from the dead. Now, he was hauled in, and um, the uh, authorities, the Sanhedrin, said, Peter, don't do this anymore or you'll be in serious trouble. How weak. If they'd had the body, they could have stopped Christianity at source. Oh, Peter, tell us what you've been telling people. Uh-huh, Jesus has risen from the dead. Mm -hmm. He's alive forevermore. Yep, mm -hmm. he's the Lord of the ages. Okay, lads, wheel him in. And so in the, comes the body of Jesus on a stretcher. You take off the cloth. There you are, Peter. One dead Jesus. Now go home and don't be stupid. 
That would have killed Christianity at source. They didn't do that. Why couldn't they do that? Because they didn't have the body either. And the final desperate one that people sometimes come up with is this. <laughs> grave robbers must have come into the... Because there were grave robbers, you see, in Jerusalem and Judea in those days. And tombs were quite often attacked. And there were, there were severe sanctions against them. Well, it is possible that grave robbers took Jesus' body from his tomb. But you are positing the most ridiculously stupid grave robbers in the history of the planet. Why? I'll give you just two reasons. One, they came to the only tomb in Palestine that was guarded that night. Whereas if they'd waited for 48 hours, they could have walked in and nobody would have stopped them. Two, they took the wrong bit. Because grave robbers in those days weren't interested in bodies. They were interested in the spices and the precious jewels that were sometimes buried with bodies. And they left all of that stuff behind and just went off with the corpse instead. Not very bright, really. There was no money in bodies. There was plenty of money in the other bits. So if none of those theories work, what are you left with? Only one conclusion, it seems to me. There is a mystery there which points, the facts themselves point, to the idea that Jesus did truly rise from the dead. And the history of the Christian church in the next 600 years after that, and in fact the next 2,000 years after that, proves again and again that this is not some theory, some paranormal, Marie Celeste, are there UFOs kind of story that goes back into history. This is something that's living and real and now. Does it matter? Well, three reasons for that. If the resurrection didn't happen, first, Christianity is pointless. Why would you go on believing what Jesus said if he is not aligned at the heart of it? Because as everybody recognises, Jesus set such a standard for morality, for relationships, for the way you ought to live your life, that nobody can live it out by themselves. In fact, Jesus says himself in the Gospels, separated from me, you can do nothing. And only if there's a living love that will not let you go. A living light that lighteth uh, up your way. Uh, only if there is somebody who is there to provide the power and the energy and the new life that we need, does it become possible. So if the resurrection didn't happen, Christianity is pointless. If the resurrection didn't happen, death wins every time. Everybody dies. And there is no hope beyond the grave unless somebody, one man in the world's history, has shown that he is a master of life and eternity and the master of death and hell itself. Third, if the resurrection didn't happen, life has no final purpose. What are we living for? There is no point unless there is some conclusion to it that takes, takes uh, account of the fact that we have hopes and dreams we will never fulfill in 70, 80 years down here. There's got to be more if life is to have a value for people. And just living through your life and then dying cannot be it. Only if there is someone who's pointed the way through life into death, out of the grave, into the presence of the Father who created you and loves you and has eternal plans for you, does any of that sort of stuff make sense? Just before I came down this afternoon, I found a, a video on YouTube which I started watching for a few minutes, and it's by Tom Holland, who's perhaps the greatest historian uh, in England at the moment. And uh, it's a guy who's just become a Christian. Staggered to hear that. I know he'd, he'd written nice things about Tom Wright and so on and so forth. But Tom Holland, from being a complete atheist, has turned to Christ because he says there is only one thing that makes sense of life, and that is if the living Lord Jesus is a reality you can actually meet. It was great to hear him at an academic conference talking about the way his opinion of Christianity has turned around to 180 degrees because he's met the person behind it. I think that's enough for tonight. Let's just pray together and go home, shall we? 
So, Heavenly Father, we've had a, a race through the evidence, as we usually do, and just had a look at the contours of the whole thing. Thank you that there are so few theories about what happened to Jesus and how they can all be knocked down so quickly, just by facts that we know already. Thank you that you've made it obvious and clear to anybody who's got an open life and heart that something happened that's not expressed easily that weekend in Jerusalem. And people ever since have experienced the power of it in their own lives in a way that points ineluctably to the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead. And so we thank you for the way in which you've provided so much evidence for the most central and important uh, fact of them all, that our punishment is paid, that death is defeated, that life stretches in front of us if we're prepared to accept it from the Lord Jesus. Help us to be confident in proclaiming this to everybody else and help us to live in the light of the resurrection for the rest of our days here and for eternity too. For your name's sake. Amen.